sermon text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there and, be, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And who could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. When was the last time you went back to the place you grew up? I don't know about you, but whenever I go back to my hometown, I suffer from this terrible case of mixed feelings. I mean, there's always excitement in the air. But I also feel quite nervous whenever I go back home. In my mind, there is always a desire to go back to the good old days of childhood. I just hope everything looks like, feels like it did 30 years ago. But the reality is that nothing is ever the same when you return to a place three decades after being gone. People's lives move on. And often, nostalgia turns into a feeling of rejection. Have you experienced this? Well, today, Jesus takes a trip back to his hometown. And familiarity with him breeds contempt. Jesus is not well-received among his people, the people of his hometown. They've moved on. They view him with disdain, and they're offended by him. Now, Jesus didn't come to earth with the goal of being well-liked. No, Jesus came to earth with the goal of being truthful. He came with an offensive message. Repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' message always placed his audience with one of two options. You either believe or you reject. So throughout the gospel of Mark, we've seen this fork on the road. But what is surprising in the Gospel of Mark is that the religious, the influential, the powerful, the popular often rejected Jesus. 
Rather, it is the simple, the humble, the broken, the religious outsiders who believe Christ. The proud, the supposedly holy, reject Him again and again. The the story we're studying today is of great relevance for us all, isn't it? As I look around this room, I see that most of us have known Christ for most of our lives. But are we in any way like the people of Jesus' hometown? Are we in any way like the people of Nazareth? Are we in any way like those who are familiarized with Christ? Have we ourselves become so familiarized with Christ that we began to take Him for granted? Have we become so involved with Christianity that we have forgotten the heart of it, Christ Himself? Have we dedicated our lives to the work of ministry to the point that we've forgotten that Christianity is not about working for Christ, but about knowing Christ? Does the strong warning in Matthew 7 resonate with your heart in any way this morning? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, th- many work, mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friend, my hope today for you is that you would know that salvation does not come to those who know of Christ, but to those who know Christ. There is a world of difference between the two. So as we turn to our text today, we're going to consider two things. We're going to see first in verses 1 through 3, taking Jesus for granted. That's what the people of his hometown do. And then in verses and through the first half of verse 6, we're going to see the consequences of faithlessness. So let's consider first taking Jesus for granted. Once again, we have a geographical movement change in our scenario. So far, virtually all of Jesus' traveling in the Gospel of Mark has taken place around the Sea of Galilee. The city of Capernaum, we've seen most of our narrative has been there. The city of Gerasa, right, where he where he uh, exercised uh, the demon out of that man. The towns around the lake, we saw that late in chapter 1. But now Jesus and and his disciples go inland. They move away from the shores of the lake. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We're told that, right? But he grew up in Nazareth. We're not told the name of his hometown here in our passage today. We're just told that he went back to his hometown. But back in chapter 1, we're told that Jesus came from Nazareth to be baptized by John the Baptist. The journey from Capernaum to Nazareth was about 20 miles. Not a very long distance for a culture where walking 
was the primary means of traveling, walking, and sailing. Jesus and his disciples could easily cover that distance in one day. Nazareth was not a very significant town. At about 60 acres, Nazareth was only about 15 times bigger than our campus here at Central Baptist. So not very big at all. At the time of Jesus, Nazareth had about 500 inhabitants. Population 500. Not once is Nazareth mentioned in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, Nazareth is only mentioned in relationship to Jesus. So this is not a very significant town. The people of this town are not known for being from that town. The motivation for Jesus to visit his hometown could be multifaceted. He did have an interaction in chapter 3 with his family. Maybe he wanted to go back and follow up on that. Maybe Jesus wanted to go back to Nazareth because he wanted to connect with the people that he wanted to proclaim his message to the people that he grew up with. Maybe he was just looking for a time of respite for him and for his disciples. Whatever the case may be, this journey to Nazareth reveals incredible things about Jesus' background and his relationship to those who saw him grow up. The people that have seen us grow up, they have seen us often in our most humble state, haven't they? They, they know things about us that could be perhaps even embarrassing, right? Once I run into an old friend at a church event down in Miami, and she said to me, you're a pastor? Well, I didn't see that coming. Which I felt like saying to her, you're a Christian. Well, I didn't see that coming, but I held my peace. But unlike me, the people of Nazareth had no reason to not see that coming. They saw the perfect spotless lamb of God grow up before their own eyes. And yet, they were completely surprised by Jesus' ministry. Jesus came to Nazareth doing what he normally did, wherever he was. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue and he began teaching. This was probably the synagogue where Jesus grew up attending week after week. It's amazing, again, to see that Jesus lived his life among the people. An incredible sign of humility. If you look at verse 2, the people of the town assess Jesus. They evaluate his ministry, both in his teaching and also, also in his miraculous work. They are astonished. This was a common reaction to Jesus' ministry. The first time we see him teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum, back in chapter 1, the people had the same exact reaction. They were astonished. They were impressed with his authority. They were impressed with his power. They were impressed with his boldness and wisdom. They were impressed with his ability to work miracles. 
So the people of Nazareth asked themselves, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? In their observation of Jesus, they were right in seeing his authority, both in the context of his teaching and in the context of his miracles. What should then be their conclusion? Their conclusion should have been, this indeed is the Son of God. This is what Mark has set out to convince us since the opening verse of the book, of this book. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what we ought to see when we behold Jesus' teaching in ministry. But in verse 3, we see that this is not the conclusion they arrive at. Instead, they question Jesus. It is important for us to consider this because it is possible to rightly assess who Jesus is and yet reject him. It is possible to have sound and right theology and yet get Jesus wrong. It is possible to be sound and biblical and yet not experience salvation. James 2.19, you believe that God is one. Every Jewish child grows up reciting that. But hear what James says, even the demons believe and shudder. Demons have sound theology, and yet they do not obey Christ. Back in chapter 3, Jesus interacts with the scribes that came from Jerusalem. They see the same things that the people of Nazareth see. The, the mighty works of Jesus, his teaching, his authority. They do not deny that Jesus taught with authority and performed miracles. But what they say is that his source of power and authority is not God, but the devil. They say he is possessed by Beelzebub, the devil himself. The people in Nazareth were not any different. They saw Jesus grow up. They, were, they knew his family. They knew him. I mean, if anyone had constant exposure to Jesus, the God-man, day in and day out, it was the people of Nazareth. And yet, they respond to him with skepticism. They respond to him with disdain. Look at verse 3. They say, is this not the carpenter? Now, nothing wrong with being a carpenter. By the way, the term here for carpenter could mean a carp, somebody that works with wood, somebody who works with stones as well, right? Considering where he was, Nazareth, probably Jesus worked with both. Nothing wrong or degrading in this culture about being a carpenter. But the question here insinuates that Jesus is just a common man. He is just an average Joe. 
The following question goes a little bit further. Is this not the son of Mary? Now, in Jewish tradition, children are named after their fathers, not after their mothers. The expected question should be, is this not the son of Joseph? Some say that the name of Mary is used here because Joseph was probably dead by this time. Although, the Gospel of John, we get the idea that Joseph was probably not dead. But in either case, even after the death of a father, children in Jesus' time, in his culture, would still be associated with the deceased father rather than the deceased mother. This was like a last name. After all, was Jesus not associated with David and called the son of David, who had been, who had been dead for a thousand years? So why do they call Jesus the son of Mary, but not the son of Joseph? Clearly, this was a way to show contempt. You don't deserve an honorable name, Jesus. You're just a common man. But perhaps there is even more to this association with Mary here. Perhaps the people of the town were saying, you are the son of Mary, illegitimate son of Joseph. Many scholars believe that there is an allusion here to the false precept that Jesus was conceived through an illegitimate relationship that Mary had apart from Joseph. This puts into question the very nature of Christ, his virgin birth. Notice too here that Jesus' brothers and sisters are mentioned. The brothers by name, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. The sisters are not mentioned probably because they were married and then they would not be mentioned by name as they were more directly associated with a different family. The fact that the people mention Jesus' sisters, plural, indicates that Jesus had at least two sisters, if not more. Again, Jesus is just a common man. He comes from a common family. There's nothing special about him. The people assume that because Jesus was humble, like us, he had no right to the power in the authority he carried himself. This is dangerous. We too sometimes follow this logic. It is dangerous for us to place too much importance in titles, degrees, and backgrounds. To only listen to the people with the degrees and the social media followers, and yet... To not perceive truth when it stands in front of us. Truth is truth, regardless of who speaks it. Friends, truly humble Christians will learn from others regardless of their education status. Regardless of their family background. It is dangerous, unwise, and prideful to have a small contingency of people who exercise authority over our souls. A mature believer is easily edified a mature believer is easily edified because a mature believer identifies truth 
and accepts it wherever it comes from. Recently, I heard an interview with a pastor who was having major problems at his church, personal problems at his church. Someone suggested to him to seek counsel with another experienced pastor. And he refused. And the reason why he refused the help was because he said the other pastor's church was smaller than his. It's pride. Pride at its worst. Mark tells us the people of Nazareth were offended by Jesus. Jesus was not worthy of their honor. They took offense at him. What an interesting reaction, right? Offense. To be offended by Christ. But what, is, what does it mean to be offended by Christ? The word Mark originally used here is the word scandalizo in, in its, uh, in its uh, simple form. I'm sure you can hear the word scandal here in this word. The idea is that Jesus was a scandal to them. He was offensive. You may say, but who would take offense at Jesus? What is offensive about Jesus? Friends, there are only two ways to relate to Jesus. We either obey him or we reject him. And when we reject him, we're offended by him. That's what it means to be offended by Jesus. The passage we read earlier in 1 Peter calls Jesus a stone of offense. Did you notice that? That means a stumbling block. Literally, a rock of scandal. Jesus is the cornerstone of our lives if and only if we believe him. But if we view him as anything other than who he truly is, he is not the Son of God, just a commoner. He is not God in the flesh. He's a good teacher. He's a prophet. But he's not the Savior of this world. If we view Jesus as anything but what he is, he will be to us a stumbling block. When I first came to America, I began attending a large church in Miami. The church had a very active youth choir. I never participated in the choir, but I knew many of the young men and women who sung in the choir. Some time ago, I came across a picture of the choir on social media, and uh, I saw a lot of the young men and women that I knew from the time that I attended the church. I decided to click around on their profiles that were linked to the picture. You know, it only takes about five to ten seconds for you to see in someone's profile if there is some Christianity in them. There's only, you only need a little bit of scrolling to see if, if there is spiritual activity in their lives. Friends, as I searched around, dozens of people, I detected zero, zero spiritual activity on all of their profiles 
in social media. On the contrary, best case scenario, I simply found indifference to Christianity. But the major theme I saw was an antagony towards Christianity, including the youth pastor himself who had become an LGBTQ advocate. Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, had become offensive to them. They were so familiarized with Jesus that they stumbled on him. How does this happen? I mean, we're familiarized with this picture, aren't we? I mean, some of the empty pews were once occupied by those who profess Christ among us. But they profess with their lips, and yet in their hearts, they reject him. What happened? Well, what happened is the same exact thing that happened in Nazareth. Proximity to Jesus without regeneration creates inoculation. If you know how vaccines are supposed to work, you are given a little bit of the virus so, you can, so your body can create a defense against the virus. This is called inoculation. A little bit of the virus prevents you from the full-blown virus. A little bit of the gospel, a little bit of Christ, a little bit of faith create inoculation towards Christ. A little bit of Jesus doesn't work. We need all of him. We need to be born of him. We need to be born in him. It is not enough to tell people that Jesus loves them. That is not the fullness of the gospel. We need to tell people that they need to die to themselves and find themselves alive in Christ. They need to die to their sins. They need to die to the world. And they need to be born in Christ. We need regeneration. The people of Nazareth didn't have regeneration. Regeneration is the work of God in us, causing us to be born again. It is the great promise of the new covenant. Regeneration does not take place when we come into contact externally with Christ. Regeneration is the internal change that God works in our hearts through His Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's regeneration. John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the things of, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That was the problem in Nazareth. They were not born again. So they could not see Jesus spiritually. They could not see the kingdom of God that had, brought, that had been drawn near to them by Christ. They couldn't see the kingdom of God standing right in front of them in the person of Christ. But what about us? What about we who are here this morning? Could we too, in some ways, be like the people of Nazareth? Friends, we can live in the middle of a Jesus culture 
And yet it is possible that Jesus does not live in us. And I was with Boaz the other day in a swimming pool. And I realized after being in the swimming pool for a bit that I became thirsty. And I realized that I was surrounded by water. And yet, I was thirsty. This is the picture. The picture is that we can be surrounded by water and water may not be in us. We can be surrounded by the Jesus culture and yet Jesus himself might not be in us. Satan knows scriptures. Demons believe God is one. The people of Nazareth knew Jesus and yet they all have stumbled on him. It is possible to love a man-made caricature of Jesus and be offended by the Jesus of the Bible. Perhaps you're not a believer among us. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you like the people of the church. You like being here. You don't think Jesus was a bad person, but he certainly wasn't God. So you find no reason to submit your life to whatever he commands. Friend, hear this warning. You are stumbling on Christ. You must be born again. Perhaps you were raised in the church. Perhaps you've assumed that the faith of your parents is your faith. Or perhaps internally you've rejected the faith of your parents, but externally you seek to demonstrate that you believe the same thing. You sympathize with Jesus but he's certainly not Lord over your life. He's certainly Lord of your heart, your tongue, your friendships, your social media, your web browsing. Friend, hear this warning. You are stumbling on Christ. You must be born again. Perhaps you would claim to be a Christian publicly, but your heart is far from God. Perhaps at a point in your life you made a profession of faith, you were baptized, but the scripture is clearly not at work, the spirit is clearly not at work in you. Your life is characterized by the deeds of the flesh and not the fruit of the spirit. You know how to behave in a Christianized way when you come to church, but at home, at the workplace, in your circle of friends, There is not an ounce of Christ in you. Friend, hear this warning. You are stumbling on Christ. You must be born again. Perhaps you are a believer. But your spiritual life has been cold. You manage to get yourself to church sometimes. Your Bible is dusty and so is your prayer life. You sense the tug of the Holy Spirit and you want to respond, but you're weak. Friend, let me encourage you. The Christian life can be hard, but faith is renewed when we run to Christ for help. There's hope in Christ for all of us. Let's turn now to our second point, the consequences of faithlessness. To reject one who speaks on behalf of God is to reject God himself. And this is even more serious here because 
the one who came to speak on behalf of God was the Son of God, God in the flesh. Israel had a history of rejecting prophets from God. Hear the words of the book of 2 Chronicles right before Jerusalem is captured and destroyed by the Chaldeans. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by, by his messenger, messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they, the people of Israel, kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no more remedy. Jesus recognizes this pattern. Jesus recognizes this pattern in his own hometown, even among his family. They were again rejecting the prophets of God. Familiarity hindering faith. The dangers of taking Jesus for granted. John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This was not just failure, okay? This was faithlessness. They're different. We all stumble in many ways, right? But the Lord lifts us up. Failure is part of the Christian life. Faithlessness is not. There is a marked difference between failure and faithlessness. God redeems failure, but He does not redeem faithlessness. Faithlessness is at the heart of every sin. Faithlessness dominates the heart of everyone who rejects Jesus. Faith is a word our culture loves to throw around, but faith that redeems is faith in Christ. Back when I used to live in Hollywood, I was talking to a Jewish neighbor, and he was insisting that we, him and I, worship the same God. I told him, Joe, my God is Jesus Christ. Is your God Jesus Christ? He said, no. And I said, then Joe, we do not worship the same God. The culture around us wants to tame Jesus. Jesus is important. He's influential. He's inspiring. But not God. Jesus is nice. He's kind. He's gentle. But he's not the Lord. Why? Because if Jesus is who he claims to be, we owe him obedience, allegiance, worship, and devotion. We owe him our lives. The question you must answer here today is, is Jesus who he says he is? And if he is who he says he is, you must submit your life completely to him. The people of Nazareth were not willing to do this. Jesus was just the boy that grew up in their streets. He wasn't God. He wasn't Lord. And because they didn't believe Jesus, they failed to see his power among them. Verse 5 is puzzling. It states that Jesus could do no mighty works in Nazareth. He healed a few people. Now, the fact that Jesus could do no mighty works in Nazareth had nothing to do with his power, but everything to do with lack of 
faith. We often emphasize the sovereignty of God over all the affairs of men. The Bible certainly teaches that. But the sovereignty or the sovereign power of God does not nullify the necessity of man's response of faith. Why couldn't Jesus do mighty works in Nazareth? Because the people didn't believe him. Why did they not see the power of Jesus among them? Because they did not have faith in Jesus. And friends, this is at the heart of this passage today. And it is the heart of the warning we must heed this day. If we don't believe Jesus, we will not ultimately see his power in our lives. I am saying that if we do not believe Jesus, we will not be saved by him. No faith, no faith in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, means no salvation. In the fact that culturally we're all so familiarized with Jesus makes me concerned. In the, in the Gospel of Mark, rarely does the religious class find favor in Jesus' eyes. In the Gospel of Mark, it is the simple fishermen were called by Jesus. It is the man of, with leprosy that is healed by Jesus. It is Levi, the tax collector, that eats and feasts with Jesus. It is the gathering demoniac that is healed by Jesus and desires to follow him as one of his disciples. It is the woman with the bleeding disorder according to the law, could never approach Jesus to find healing in him. What is in common with all of these people? It is not their influence. It is not their spiritual discipline. It is not their position at the synagogue. It is not their popular recognition. What is in common with all of these people is that they had faith in Jesus. But this faith was not in the heart of the people of Nazareth. Look at verse 6. Jesus looked at the crowd. He saw the unbelief in their hearts and he marveled at them. Now the crowds often marvel at Jesus. This is not surprising but there are only two times in all of Scripture where Jesus is marveled at someone or something. The first is here, as he marvels as, at the unbelief of the people. Here is the Son of God bringing the kingdom of God to the insignificant city of Nazareth, and they don't believe him. And Jesus marvels. But the other time that Jesus is said to marvel is when a Roman centurion came to him pleading for the life of his servant. And he said to Jesus, if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, I have not seen such faith in all of Israel. And Jesus marveled at him. Jesus, friends, does not, is not impressed with great works done in the name of Christianity. Jesus is not impressed with great theological eloquence. Jesus is not impressed with the self-righteous. What impresses Jesus is simple faith in a great Savior. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. 
You know, at the heart of the story, there is a theme that runs through the Gospel of Mark. Really, there is a theme that runs through the Bible. From Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20. The theme of rejection. The rejection of Christ. The rejection of the Son of God. The rejection that Jesus experienced here in Nazareth points forward to the rejection he would eventually face on the cross. And the faithlessness of the people of Nazareth points forward to our own faithlessness and rejection of him. Friends, even if we believe in Christ today at a point in our lives, we were not any different than the people of Nazareth. The prophet Isaiah said that he was despised and rejected by men. Okay, this includes all humanity. Okay? He could have said here, which is also true, he was despised and rejected by his people, by Israel. No, but the prophet says that it is the common attitude towards Jesus, Jesus among all men, that we reject him. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This is a picture of Jesus' rejection on the cross. It is a picture of what would happen. That when Jesus goes to the cross, even his closest disciples desert him. And with them, we too deserted Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross alone because no one could take that cross in his place. And he dies. He is rejected by men. But his sacrifice is accepted by God. Friends, that sacrifice that Jesus presented on the cross was for the sins of everyone who would turn to him and confess their sins. Jesus died to pay for sins. Jesus was rejected, and it is a good thing that he was rejected by men because through his rejection, we are accepted. The Father only accepts us because our sins have been paid by Christ. So friends, do not let your familiarity with Jesus think that there is any other way that you can be justified, made right before God. If you reject Jesus, the Father will reject you. But if you accept Jesus and believe in his sacrifice for you, the Father will accept you. Here's what's beautiful about Jesus' sacrifice, is that his sacrifice was not forever. Jesus died on the cross and he was raised. Not only was he, was he raised in power, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And why is that important? Because if Jesus had not ascended to the right hand of the Father, we would not receive the benefits of his salvation. Because he goes to the Father and he sends to us the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes to us, the benefits of the sacrifice of Jesus are applied to us and we turn from those who reject Jesus to those who accept Jesus. That's what it means to be born again. That's what we need. 
We don't need a little bit of Christianity. We don't need a little bit of spiritual disciplines. We don't need a little bit of this, a little bit of that. We need the whole Christ in us as His Spirit dwells in us, causes us from go, to go from death to life. This is what it means to be born again. Friend, my question to you today is, have you received Christ? The whole Christ. Are you trusting in Him with your life? Has His Spirit come and dwell you and cause you to live in Him and through Him? We can look at Christ and be offended by Him. Or we can look at Christ and recognize that our offenses were pinned to His cross and we therefore can live today with hope. Friend, are you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and your hope of eternal life? I pray that you are. Would you pray with me? Father, how lovely, how beautiful is your Son. Father, we pray that our familiarity with Him would not cause us to breed contempt in our hearts, but that we would see our utter desperate need for him that we would know that his rejection was because of our sins and that we would also know that he was forsaken so we could be forgiven father i pray that this truth would would create deep roots in our hearts lord may we not be inoculated with the gospel but may we be completely submerged by it totally found in the whole Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.